0: Let me invite you to take God's word, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number 12. We return this morning to our previous study in the book of 1 Corinthians. And as we return to the book, we begin a new section in 1 Corinthians. A section that is fraught with questions concerning one of the most important aspects and most misunderstood aspects of the Christian life, and that is the subject of spiritual gifts. Now, this section causes many people to ask many different questions. Uh, We ask theological questions when we come to this section. Are these gifts still in operation today? Uh, Should a church have people in it who speak in tongues, who have the gift of prophecy, who interpret tongues, who, um, who perform various types of miracles. We ask theological questions. Did some of these gifts cease with the apostles? Uh, I hold that many of them did. Uh, we might not get into all of that today, but uh, we, we will in the upcoming weeks. But it also causes us to ask personal questions. What are my spiritual gifts? Do I have a spiritual gift? Can I choose which spiritual gift I want? Um, With the charismatic movement that is uh, going throughout the land today, a lot of people ask questions in particular about tongues. Should I speak in tongues? If I don't speak in tongues, does this mean I do not have the Holy Spirit? Uh, Does every believer have the same gift? These are just a few of the questions that arise in people's hearts and minds when you come to this section in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 13 and 14 that deals with spiritual gifts. And what has happened is because of the question, because of the confusion, instead of this section being glorious as it ought to be, it's shrouded in mystery. Uh, we are sometimes intimidated whenever we come to this passage of scripture. So I'm just going to be up front over the next couple of weeks on what my goal is. Uh, My goal is not to answer every single question somebody might have about spiritual gifts. That's an impossibility, I think. Nor is it my goal to belittle anyone who may disagree with me on the spiritual gifts or to throw off on any particular denomination. But my goal is to present an honest and biblically accurate picture of, of what spiritual gifts are, to help you on your journey to discover what God has equipped you with and given to you, to caution you um, from allowing your spiritual gift to cause pride to well up in your heart, and also to erase any feeling of inferiority you may have because you feel like another believer has a superior gift than what you've been given, and then also to show us how a church should function properly and orderly for the glory of God by using the gift that God has given to individual members in that church. And so we begin our study of spiritual gifts uh, with the foundational text in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1 through 11. And we will build on this in the upcoming weeks. So here now the words of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. and There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You know, when NASA sends a, a shuttle to the moon, one of the most important parts of the launch is making sure that the shuttle is aligned properly. If the shuttle is off just one degree on earth. By the time the shuttle reaches space, it will be miles from uh, reaching its destination. One person has calculated that if a shuttle is launching, going to the moon, and it is off just one degree on earth, by the time it reaches the mileage that would have caused it to arrive at the moon, it would be 4,169 miles off from its original target, missing the moon entirely. This is a reminder to us that arriving at your proper destination depends greatly on being aligned properly at the beginning. What Paul does in this section, chapters 12, 13, and 14, is he wants to begin by making sure we are aligned properly whenever it comes to the issue and to the subject of spiritual gifts. The reason being, the Corinthian believers had totally missed the mark. They had become unaligned in the way they looked and the way they thought and the way they practiced spiritual gifts in their congregation. Instead of using spiritual gifts as a means to build up others, they were using their spiritual gifts as a means of self-promotion, self-exaltation, And pride, instead of humility, began to fill the hearts and the congregation at Corinth. Uh, The gift that was most misused in Corinth, unsurprisingly, uh, was the gift of tongues. So much so, Paul will devote an entire chapter to showing us the superiority of prophecy over tongues. And even having to give instructions on making sure. That the church operates in decency and in order. And that God is not in the chaos that is going on in the church at Corinth whenever Paul writes this letter. Now, Paul understands something about the Corinthian believers. The reason they are so off the mark when it comes to spiritual truths and spiritual gifts is because they are off a few degrees when it comes to foundational truths. They are not aligned properly at the base. In fact, when he begins in verse 1, he mentions that they are ignorant of these things. Uh, Again, this is a a section marker in 1 Corinthians. Whenever Paul begins and he says, says to them, I don't want you to be uninformed, he is writing to them about a new section, a new subject. And he says, I don't want you to be uninformed. What does that mean? He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of these truths. But what's interesting is that he doesn't launch off into a discourse on spiritual truths. He begins in verses 1 through 3 with what I think is a discourse on their salvation. And then in verses 4 through 11, he focuses on their Christian service. He is attempting to do a mid-flight correction. And the way he does this in-flight correction is to remind them of the basics of what it means to be a believer, what it means to be a servant of Christ, and to remind them of one of the greatest pride-killing truths and doctrines that you will ever learn about in your life. And it is the truths and the doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty over all things. Whether it is our salvation or whether it is our service, God is completely Absolutely, totally sovereign over all of it. And the only reason we have the ability to partake in any of it is because of his sovereign grace. So if I were to say that verses 1 through 11 teach us anything, it teaches us that our salvation, our service to Christ is all dependent on God's saving grace. And thus, in verses 1 through 3, Paul wants us to know that we're saved by sovereign grace. Now, what does that mean? It means that the only reason we are saved is because God in his mercy, God in his grace, God in his goodness toward us saved us because he chose to save us. That's the only reason God saved us. It's not because there was anything good in us, not because he saw anything good in us, but it was because God in eternity made a choice, and that choice was to save us. And we owe all of our salvation to his sovereign choice. And so in verses 2 and 3, Paul is going to remind the Corinthians of their salvation experience, and it is a good time for us to be reminded of ours as well. Because verse 2, he begins with a reminder of our past condition. Look what he says in verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. Now, what is this about? Well, Paul begins here by listing our identity, our past identity. What was it? We were pagans. The idea of a pagan is that of an idol worshiper, that we were someone who worshiped something other than God. Now, we know that the believers at Corinth were were stooped in paganism before they were converted to Christ. They, uh, Corinth was a great melting pot of Greek culture. Many of the believers at Corinth had come from a background of, of paganism where they had worshipped and served Greek gods and goddesses. They had worshipped and served Apollo and Aphrodite and Athena and Hermes and Poseidon and Zeus And they had worshipped at the shrines. They had worshipped at the temples. And Paul says, remember this about yourself. Before you were saved, you were a bunch of pagans, a bunch of idols, um, idolaters. And isn't that really true about us as well? Now, sure, we may have never worshipped at the shrine of Zeus, or we may have never worshipped at the temple of Apollos. But we had our American idols, didn't we? (laughs) Uh, As we're going through in Sunday school, we worship the gods of money and power and sex and self and fame and all of those things enraptured us and all of those things stole our affection and our attention. And we worship those things, replacing God with those things. So we too, formerly, were pagans. But from our identity, he moves to our captivity. Look what he says. You were led astray. To be led astray, that term was used to describe prisoners who were being led captive either to the prison or to their execution. And Paul says, here's what you were like. (laughs) You're like the children who were following the Pied Piper. I mean, you were just blindly following and being led astray. You were being deceived and you were captive you were held ransom in your own sins, as were we all. And then notice our futility. Where were we led to? He said we were led astray to mute idols. You know, that's an Old Testament phrase that was oftentimes used when God would compare Himself with the idols that Israel was worshiping in the Old Testament. You know what he would say? You're worshiping idols. They can't see, they can't hear, they can't speak, they're dumb, they have no power to work, and yet you are worshiping them. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's using his Old Testament background, and he's saying that in our former life, we worshiped things that were not God. We worshiped things that could not see, could not hear, could not speak, and and thus it was futile of us. Because we worship something other than God. And then he mentioned our mentality. Now, look what he says in verse 3. Now, this is, this is where you get into some debate. But he says, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. Now, there's much debate as to what Paul means here. Some think he's speaking of Jews who had come into the, uh, the church and the Jews trying to convince believers to turn to Judaism would say that Jesus hung on a cross and the Old Testament places a curse on anyone who dies on a tree. So Jesus is anathema. Jesus is accursed. Some believe he's speaking here of a Gnostic belief that had crept into the early church that said the body was evil, the soul was good. So Jesus was both evil and good. So his body was accursed and anathema. Um, And Paul's saying that no one who has the Spirit would ever say this about Jesus. I don't think that's what he's saying. Because when you look at the the positioning, you look at the juxtaposition of this passage, he compares it with what someone who has the Spirit says about Jesus. All right, No one who has the Spirit ever says Jesus is accursed. What does someone who has the Spirit say? Jesus is Lord. You know what he's saying? He was saying that in your former life, because you did not have the Spirit of God, you did not see Jesus as who he truly is. You know, even growing up, I grew up in a Christian home. I was taught, I don't ever remember a time in my life where I did not know who Jesus was. I really don't. But yet, as a young child, knowing about Jesus, I still, in my sin, I still, in my, in my depravity, did not see him for who he truly was until I was Converted. Up to that point, he he you know he he was somebody that I respected. He was somebody I knew I was supposed to be kind to, but I didn't see him as who he truly was. And you know, someone without the Spirit of God, they do not see Jesus as Lord of all. They do not see Jesus as the Messiah. They don't see him as as Christ. Uh, they may see him as a good teacher, they may see him as someone that they hold in high regards, but not for who he truly is. And Paul says, remember. Your past condition. Now, there's nothing that humbles us anymore or should humble us anymore than being reminded of what low-down, mangy, depraved sinners we used to be. We need to be reminded of that from time to time. And so Paul reminds them of that, but he also, at the same time, reminds us of our present confession. Now, look what he says. He says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except In the Holy Spirit. Now, what he's not saying is that no one can utter those words except by the Holy Spirit. I mean, unbelievers can utter the words, Jesus is Lord. What he's saying is, you cannot truly confess Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit of God. Now, what does this mean? Here's what it means. It means that the only thing that can change a mind from saying that Jesus is accursed To saying Jesus is the Lord is the supernatural, sovereign working of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you something. What changed your mind about Jesus? Think about your conversion. At the moment that you trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, what changed your mind about Jesus? Did you learn something about Jesus that you didn't know about him before? Did you become smarter? Did you just say, you know what? I'm going to decide that Jesus is Lord and I'm going to make him Lord. Is that how it worked? No. Something happened in your heart that caused you to see the beauty, the glory, the brilliance of Jesus and caused you to see Jesus for who he truly was and thus you confessed him as Lord. What was that? Or I should say, who was that? That was the Holy Spirit of God. Do you notice what he doesn't say? He doesn't say the only way you receive the Holy Spirit is to confess Jesus is Lord. He doesn't say you say Jesus is Lord and then you receive the Holy Spirit. Is that what he says? No. He says the only way you're even able to confess Jesus as Lord is through the Holy Spirit. Which means what? It means that we are not we do not confess and then we are regenerated it means that the regenerating work of the holy spirit must first take place in our heart and then and then we are saved then 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 we confess christ as our lord and as our savior and so here he reminds us of our present confession all right now why does he do this why does paul begin here with Talking about God's saving work and His sovereign grace. Because don't miss this. He does this to read out, to weed out the roots of bitterness that had taken grip on the hearts of the Corinthians. And He wants us to know this that just as our salvation is the result of God's sovereign grace and God's sovereign grace alone, that we are saved by grace, He also wants us to know that we also serve God by sovereign grace, right? The same grace whereby we are saved is the same grace whereby we serve God. And when it comes to boasting and it comes to pride, I have as much right to boast about my spiritual gift as I have to boast about my salvation. Now question, does the person in verse 1 through 3 have any right whatsoever to boast about his salvation? No, no not in and of himself, and so all the glory goes to God, and so the same thing is true when it comes to spiritual gifts, and that's why Paul begins with salvation, and he moves to service. Now, in verse 4 through 7, he or verse 4 through 11, he's going to give us uh, a picture, an overview of spiritual gifts. Now, what I want to do is I want to give you, under this heading of We Serve by Sovereign Grace, I want to give you... Three main headings and several little headings underneath each one. So you'll just have to listen and write fast as we we go through this. But three crucial truths about the gifts of the Spirit that Paul reveals to us in this passage. The first one is this. Is that the gifts of the Spirit are sovereignly distributed. Gifts of the Spirit are sovereignly distributed. Look down in verse number 11 what he says. All these, speaking of gifts, are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each individually, watch this, as he wills. As he wills. Verse 4 says, there are varieties of gifts but the same Spirit. Verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given. You know, when it comes to how God sovereignly distributes his gifts, we have to understand first that it is an act of grace. The word gifts here is the Greek word charismata. Uh, that's, that's where the you get the word charismatic from. Uh, actually, I, I, was going to, I was going to title the sermon Why Every Christian's is a Charismatic, but I was afraid that, was going to, that would be twisted out of control, so uh, I just stuck with understanding spiritual gifts. But the word charismata comes from the Greek root word charis. That's the word from which we get our word grace from. And so what he is actually speaking about here are grace gifts. That is, they are gifts that are given to us by the grace of of God. Now, here's an observation. That is, if receiving a spiritual gifts dependent on God's sovereign grace. Remember, he gives them to whoever he wills, however he wills, and whatever he wills. Then there is something we have to understand about spiritual gifts and it being a grace gift. And the first is this, we don't earn our gifts. You don't earn a gift from God. I had a lady tell me one time that she received the baptism of the Holy Spirit in spoken tongues after she had fasted from food and water for seven days. She said she went seven days without food and water and she never even brushed her teeth because she was afraid she would would, uh, swallow some of the water and after seven days, she then... Spoke in tongues and received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, my response was twofold. One, if you haven't eaten or drank in seven days, it's untelling what you might say. So that's the first one. And I know that was probably smart aleck of me. But the second one was was much more theological, and it was this. Then what you received wasn't a gift because you earned it. I mean, if you had to fast for it, you've earned it. That's yours by right. That was a debt. You, that was a, you put God in debt for those seven days, and He had to do that for you then. So, what you've got is not a gift. Now, is that not biblical logic? And that is completely contrary to what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying here when it comes to gifts, you don't fast for them, you don't, you don't, lo- you should desire gifts, but you can do nothing to earn a spiritual gift. They are gifts of grace. We don't earn our gifts, we don't choose our gifts. Who chooses the gifts? I mean, we don't take the spiritual gifts in the New Testament, put them on a list and hand them to God and say, here's my Christmas list, okay? I'd like this gift if you can, if you're not too busy, You know, throw in some other gifts, but here's what I'd like to have. That's not how it works. Verse 11 is clear that the Spirit gives gifts to whoever he wants as he wants wills as he wills. There is a choice in the matter of spiritual gifts, but it's not mine. It's his. He chooses it. So we don't choose our gifts, and we don't deserve our gifts. If our gifts are given to us by the grace of God, I deserve the spiritual gift God has given to me as much as I deserve the salvation God has given to me, and I deserve neither. I don't deserve any of it. And so understand that as God gives spiritual gifts, he's not going through a congregation and saying, this Christian's really good, so I'm going to give him a good one. This one's not too good, so I'll give him one of the lesser gifts. That's not the way it works. No. God graciously gives gifts to whomever he wills. And so he is the one in control of it, and it's an act of grace. But it's not only an act of grace. It's also an act of the Trinity. Look here in verse 4 and 5 closely. Listen, see if you can, you can pick up on what Paul says about the Trinity. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Do you know when it comes to our salvation, The Trinity is at work in our salvation. The Trinity. God exists in three persons. Both co-equal, co-eternal, co-essential. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are one and yet they are unique and diverse in salvation. It is the Father who elects and chooses and who sends the Son. It is the Son who accepts that role, comes to earth. Dies as an atonement. And then it is the Spirit of God who comes to this earth after the Son is received into heaven. And he applies that which the Son purchased. He regenerates, draws, and seals believers. And so you see how the Trinity is involved in every aspect from eternity to eternity in the salvation of the believer. Well, the same is true with our service and our gifts. Because he says there's a variety of gifts. But who gives it? The Spirit of God. There are varieties of service. There's different ways in which you serve. But what is attached to our service? The same Lord. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. You serve the Lord Jesus. And then there are varieties of activities or empowerments. But it's the same God. It comes to us through the Father. So if I were to sum up verse 4 through 5 what Paul is saying in verse 6, I'd put it this way. That spiritual gifts are given by the Holy Spirit so that we may faithfully serve the Lord Jesus Christ through the power that God the Father provides. That's what verses 4 through 6 are telling us. And so not only is it an act of grace, but it's also an act of the Trinity. You have the entire Godhead involved in our gifts. So spiritual gifts are sovereignly distributed. But secondly, they are specifically designed. Why does he give spiritual gifts to believers? Well, there's a two-fold reason. The first one is this. He gives gifts for the glory of God. Brother Teddy read it in our scripture reading. 1 Peter 4, verse 10 through 11. Peter writes this. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. When Peter writes about spiritual gifts in 1 Peter 4, he says what you should do, do, use the gift God has given to you, use it in the power in which God's provided to you so that The God who gave you the gift will be the God who gets the glory for it. You know, what was one of the reasons God gave spiritual gifts, especially the sign gifts in the early church? One of the reasons was that God might be glorified and the gospel message verified. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 4 says that God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. As the gospel is moving forward, they didn't have Bibles to pack and say, this is how you know what I'm telling you is the truth. Look in the Bible. How did God bear witness to the message? He often bore witness to the message by performing a miracle, uh, by, by doing something supernatural. Uh, as Peter and James are walking from the temple, uh, someone cries out to them for alms. and What, does, what do they say to him? silver and gold i don't have any, i have none but such as i have give I you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth arise and walk and what happened the man rose up and he walked and that miracle that miracle verified the gospel message of Jesus Christ and so that was one of the reasons god gave the supernatural sign gifts to the early church now do we have to verify our message today with miracles the only way you know that I'm preaching the true gospel that I perform a miracle? No, absolutely not. Now we have the canon of scripture. And now you know that I'm telling you the truth because it comes from the Bible. And so, but, but the reason God gives gifts and not just supernatural gifts or the foundational gifts, the reason he's gifted you and me is that he might be glorified. But the second reason he gives gifts is for the good of others. You know, I used to hate going back to school after Christmas, not just because I didn't want to go to school. I actually liked going to school. But I knew that first day back what it would entail, uh, especially in elementary school. Um, and the teachers did this. They didn't do it for malice. They, and I don't even think they knew. I don't even think they understood how it made some kids feel. But I, I didn't like it because I knew when we went back to school, we were going to have to do something. We're going to have to tell the whole class what we got for Christmas. And so, and, and by the way, that's when I quit believing in Santa Claus. When all the bad kids got all the best presents, I thought there's nothing to this good list and naughty list stuff. I mean, it, it just can't be right. Uh, but uh, uh, but we, we go there and, you know, one kid gets up and he gives the office list of gifts that he, that he got. And, and boy, he's as proud as a peacock when he's standing up there. Now, I always got good Christmas gifts, so it didn't really bother me to tell everybody what I got. But I was in class with some poor kids. And they would get up and they'd talk about getting a pair of shoes. Or they'd talk about just getting one little thing. And I could, I could tell that they felt inferior because they didn't receive a gift that somebody else received. And you know, that was really what was going on in Corinth. What was going on in Corinth is you had some people who were boasting about the gift that they had. While there were some others standing around saying, wait a minute, I don't have that gift. Am, am I not as good a Christian as, as they are? And so you had both the feelings of superiority in some and inferiority in others, and it was clashing. And so Paul has to remind them that the reason we've been given gifts is for the good of others. Verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Which means if my gift or the way I use my gift makes you feel inferior, makes you feel like less of a believer, like your gift isn't good, then I am not using my gift properly because it is supposed to be used to build you up and to edify you. Later, when Paul tackles the issue of tongues, which was causing the most problems in Corinth, in chapter 14, verse 12, he says, so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. He says Try to excel in building up the church. Tim Keller says when it comes to our spiritual gifts, we have to understand something. That no one is merely a consumer of services, but everyone is a distributor. God doesn't give you a spiritual gift so that you can just consume that gift yourself. No, he gives you a gift in order that you might be able to serve others and distribute that to others and build up others. So spiritual gifts are specifically designed for the glory of God. For the good of others, and then thirdly, spiritual gifts are uniquely diverse. Uniquely diverse. Now, when you come to verse seven, or actually verse eight through eleven, Paul is going to mention some specific gifts. Uh, But before we do that, I want to start with what I've just called a definition of spiritual gifts. So I've spoke about spiritual gifts. I've talked about spiritual gifts. So if I were to give you a definition of spiritual gifts, what would that definition be? Here's what it would be. That a spiritual gift is a supernatural enablement sovereignly given by God to believers so that they can effectively serve the body of Christ. Let me say that again, and I'll say it slowly. That a spiritual gift is a supernatural enablement sovereignly given by God to believers so that they can effectively serve the body of Christ. Let me say this. A spiritual gift is not a natural ability or talent. Okay? Natural ability and talent, those are common grace gifts, not spiritual gifts. Let me give you an example. Uh, if someone can sing, okay, if they have a great singing voice, they probably had a great singing voice before they were saved. That's a natural ability. That is a talent. Somebody once told me, singing's my spiritual gift. And I said, no, it's not. <laughs> and they wanted to crucify me, but I told them, it's, it's not a spiritual gift. You know why? You could sing before you were saved. Right? Now, after you're saved, now what you've done is you're taking that natural talent and ability and you're using it now for the glory of God. There's a change in what you use it for. Same thing with playing, playing music. If you're a musician, Brother Jordan, he, you know, that's not a spiritual gift. That's a God-given talent, but it's not a spiritual gift. But what do you do? You use that for the glory of God. Spiritual gifts completely different. A spiritual gift is something that is supernaturally given to you by God, and it's given to you after you are saved. It is a divine enablement, okay? So don't don't look at people who have sometimes natural ability and think, boy, I wish I had their spiritual gift. It's not a spiritual gift. It is an ability or a talent that they are now using and honing and, and sharpening for the glory of God, and we ought to thank God for that, but it's not a spiritual gift. Okay, so don't get confused about that. It's a supernatural enablement that God gives to his people so they might serve him. All right, now, having defined it, let me make a couple of observations about spiritual gifts based on verses 7 through 11. Now, what are the observations? Well, I've got three, and they're deep, okay, so you're going to have to think with me. I'm just saying that just to get you to think. Here's the first one. Every believer has a spiritual gift. At least one. At least one. Look in verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Did you get that? To who? To each is given. Okay? Uh, Again, at the end of verse 6, he says it's the same God who empowers them all in who? In everyone. Everyone. That is, every believer. Verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to who? To each one individually as he wills. That means if you are saved by the grace of God, you have not been left out when it comes to spiritual gifts. That God has a spiritual gift for you or God has given a spiritual gift to you already. It is yours. Okay? Every believer has a spiritual gift. Secondly... No believer has all gifts. There are no super believers, okay? Again, when you read through verses 7 through 11, Paul is very quick to point this out in verse 8. For to one is given, to another is given, to another is given, to another is given. And it becomes very apparent. There are no super Christians out there who are blessed with all the spiritual gifts. None of us. No one is, okay? Okay. What if there was a Christian who was blessed with every single spiritual gift? you know what we'd start doing? We'd start putting faith in that individual rather than in the God who gives the gift. So, so there, are no, there are no super spiritual gifted Christians out there who've got all the gifts. But we also notice that no gift is common among all believers. Now what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is there's not one gift. That God says, I've given to every believer. They're all different. Now, he may equip several believers with the same gift. But when it comes to spiritual gifts, he does not give all believers one gift. Same gift. And, and again, and I am not by any means thrown off on anybody or any denomination. But the idea that says that every believer must speak in tongues as sign of receiving the Holy Spirit runs completely contrary to what Paul is saying here in this passage. To elevate a gift and say that every believer has to have this gift in order to have the Holy Spirit is to say the exact opposite of what Paul says here. He says, to another is given various types, kinds of tongues. He doesn't say to everyone. No one does he say to everyone is given this gift. No, but to another, to another, to another, to another. So when it comes to spiritual gifts, every believer has a gift. No believer has all gifts. And no gift is common among all believers. God loves variety. Someone says God loves variety so much that when he sends a snowstorm, not one snowflake is the exact representation of the other. They're all varieties. And that's the way a church ought to be as well. Now notice we've looked at, made an observation, I've given a definition, now let's look at a quick description of some spiritual gifts, and I say that specifically because what you have in verse 9 through 11, or 7 through 11, is Paul lists nine gifts. Now this list of gifts is not exhaustive, that is, he does not mention all spiritual gifts. If you read through the New Testament, you'll find a similar list in 1 Peter chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, Romans chapter 12. And the gifts are different. There are different gifts mentioned in each one. So do I know all the spiritual gifts that are there? No, I don't. But we must be careful about making each list exhaustive. Um, you know why Paul mentions the gifts here in 1 Corinthians? Because some of the, most of these gifts that are being mentioned here one, the Corinthians wrote to Paul asking about it. But two, they had become the source of the problem that was going on in the church at Corinth. And, and they were being used to cause chaos and confusion rather than to cause unity and to prompt um, prompt edification in the body of Christ. So what are these gifts? Now, we'll run through them quickly. The first one was the utterance of wisdom. The word utterance means the, the word of wisdom. Um, what is this? Well, many believe it's the ability to evaluate reality in the light of God's wisdom as revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ. You, you cannot separate wisdom from the cross for the wisdom of the God in 1 Corinthians 1 is, is, is wiser, the foolishness of God's wiser than man because the wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians 1 is revealed where? In the cross of Christ. And so there's just some people I think God equips to be able to apply the cross in any situation that that folks are in. God's given them insight. Then there's an utterance of knowledge. Uh, What is that? Uh, you know, it's a gift whereby God gives spiritual and biblical insight to to others when it comes to the truths of the gospel. Have you ever been around someone, you can read a verse fifty times and they, they seem to just be able to read it, and they get so much more out of it. And uh, uh, when they explain it, you, you look at it and you think, why in the world didn't I see that? Uh, and, and it's just people that you know, God has gifted with that. And, and you, know, you don't have to have a seminary degree. It, it's God has given, I think, some people that, that insight. Third, faith, the gift of faith. Now, this is not saving faith. Although saving faith is a gift from God, That is not the faith that Paul has in mind in verse 9. The type of faith he has in mind in verse 9 is the type of faith whereby someone trusts God for extraordinary things. I mean, uh, I'm talking George Mueller type of things. Uh, Mueller ran the orphanage in Bristol and and over 10,000 orphans would, would stay under his care throughout his time there. And not one time did he ever solicit anybody for funds. Not one time. He said, God will provide. And so he would pray and God would provide. He would pray and God would provide. And you couldn't shake him from that. Have you ever been around someone who, if you're trying to accomplish a task, if you're trying to do something for Christ, no matter how bad it is, you can't shake them. Their faith is unshakable. Well, that is a gift from God. Uh, sometimes I wish, there's probably one spiritual gift I, I know I don't have, but it's one the, that one uh, I wouldn't mind having from time to time. Uh, But but there are certain people that you cannot shake their faith. And so Paul uh, lists that here. The fourth one is gifts of healing. Now, you notice he doesn't say it is the gift of healing, singular, but it's plural. Gifts of healing. Um, And let me say this. I do believe God heals. No doubt in my mind God heals. If I'm sick, I pray for God to heal me. Uh, if i'm diagnosed with with cancer i'm going to pray for God to heal me but it is not the the type of the type of shenanigans that you see on television uh, with someone who gets the the gift of healing and they start a, a healing crusade that that is not what Paul has in mind here because in you know I have no doubt that this gift a foundational gift was one in which God used at this time to To verify the gospel. We see it again in Acts 3. We see it over and over again in in Paul's ministry of healing people of of, of sickness to verify the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's not a singular gift. It is gifts. Do you know when Jesus healed somebody? When he healed the woman with the issue of blood. You know what? He didn't just heal her of the issue of blood. He made her completely whole. Completely whole. Body, mind, Mentally, anything else. Um, and so what we have here is that God would, would bless certain people with this gift to be able to bring healing to others. Um, and then the fifth one is the working of miracles. Calvin and several other commentators believe that he is speaking here about the ability to deal with the demonic and to cast out the demonic. Uh, we, we see this again in the, in the book of Acts with the casting out of, of demons, something Jesus did with the maniac of Gadara, and uh, something as well with, with uh, many others that you find even going through the book of Acts as there's this battle that has taken place uh, between, between in the spiritual realms. And so God would bless others with the ability, the gift to be able to cast out demons. Not everyone, but certain people did. And then sixthly, there is the gift of prophecy. Uh, the gift of prophecy was the gift of being able to speak forth or to pronounce or to proclaim. Um, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets would oftentimes speak on behalf of the Lord. And when they spoke on behalf of the Lord, they would preface their announcements with, Thus saith the Lord, meaning that what follows are not my words, but they are the words of the Lord. So listen. Listen. In the New Testament, Paul lists lists the prophets alongside of the apostles as being the foundation of the early church. Why? Because a New Testament prophet was one who was speaking new revelation in the sense that the message had not previously been given. Paul says that I was made a steward of the mysteries of Christ, which in other ages was not made manifest to the sons of men as it's now being made manifest. So when Paul preaches the gospel in the New Testament, he is actually revealing a new message, although it's an eternal message. It was new as far as God's timing in redemptive history goes. And so those New Testament prophets came, and they spoke, and they spoke the gospel, which was indeed new to those who had heard it. All right? Why is it now... Do we have prophets now? Do prophets meet that category now? I had a guy tell me a little while ago. A lot of you know the story. He was a prophet. Yeah. That the uh, Lord told him that uh, he and I needed to team up. We do a lot of good together. And I told him, I said, Listen, God's not told me one thing about that. You know, <laughs> he tells me we'll talk about it, but no. Uh, and uh, listen. Anybody shows up who says they're a prophet of God and says, Thus says the Lord, and they act as if what they say later comes from God, mark them as a prophet but as a false one. God doesn't speak that way anymore. Why? Because we have his word. Now, I would say that the gift of prophecy has, I don't want to say it's transformed or it has changed, but it is indeed different now because we don't speak anything new. Right? it is the ability to clearly proclaim God's word. If someone says, "I have a new revelation from God," oh, he's a prophet, but he's a false one because there are no new revelations from God. The last amen of Revelation twenty two twenty one seals up the prophecy. Okay, there will be no more revelation from God, and thus we proclaim what Scripture says. All right, the seventh gift he mentions here, uh, is in verse 10, the ability to distinguish between spirits. Uh, That is, and and you understand, especially at the time, before people had Bibles to pack around with them. Uh, That's why Paul says the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. There were people that God gifted with the ability to discern whether or not a prophet was from God or whether he wasn't from God. And so as he spoke, they had the ability to discern it to distinguish whether it is from God or whether it isn't from God. And, you know, in some sense, every Christian is called to discern good and evil, discern proper truth from from lies. Uh, That's one reason why we are to study to show ourselves approved. We are to be Berean Christians who, when Paul passed through Berea, they took the Scriptures, they searched out the Old Testament to see if what Paul was telling them was the truth. And by the way, if they would search and study behind the Apostle Paul, you had better search and study behind me or anybody else who stands behind the sacred desk. Why? To discern whether or not it is right or wrong. But this gift speaks of one who had a spirit-given ability to determine whether someone was from God or whether they were not from God. Uh, Then the eighth gift that he mentions in verse 10 is various kinds of tongues. Uh, What is that? Well, again, this is the hot-button issue in Corinth. It's the hot-button issue in Christianity today. But I am, again, 100% convinced that what Paul mentions here when he uses the term tongue is he is speaking of the same phenomenon that took place in Acts chapter 2. And that is that someone has the ability to speak in a language that they had never learned. That is what happens in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, you have 120 uh, Jews who preach the gospel in a multitude of different languages. And people who were there from Europe and Africa and Asia are astonished because they don't understand how these men, who had never learned their language, can speak in their own language. Now, I believe in the hermeneutic of the principle of first mention, which means... When something is first mentioned in Scripture, you see a truth about that subject that follows it everywhere else throughout all of Scripture, okay? Which means that I don't think what Paul is speaking of here when he speaks of tongues is some ecstatic utterance where the speaker does not understand what's being said and that, you know, uh, for the most part, no one around them understands what's being said. Understand Corinth. Corinth was a city of two ports, which means they had people coming in on the east and on the west. And it was a melting pot of several different cultures and societies. And so it would have been very common in Corinth on a Sunday morning to have a congregation of people who was made up of several different people who spoke several different languages. And so I can see God blessing this church with several people in it who had the ability to speak in tongues. That is, they would get up and share the gospel, feel like they're speaking in their own language, but it would come out in a language of someone else who was there. Now, the ninth gift that he mentions here is the ability to interpret the tongue, which means if I get up today, if there was a, if there was a Russian here this morning, and I get up and I speak Russian, all right, that Russian knows what I'm speaking. Nobody else here knows what in the world I'm speaking. So what happens? Well, we would need somebody to tell the rest of the congregation exactly what it was I was saying. And so God not only would bless someone with the ability to speak in tongues, other languages, he would also supernaturally bless someone, and this is key, who had never learned a language to be able to hear it and interpret it for other people. Now, if I stand up and speak Spanish and Deb stands up and interprets it, she's learned Spanish. She knows Spanish, all right? She went to college for Spanish. Now, Teddy interprets it. I don't think he knows Spanish. <laughs> That's from God. God. But if Debbie verifies what I say and Teddy interprets, then guess what? You'd have to say, yes, that's, that's right. That's, that's from God. And that's why Paul puts the stipulations on how tongues are to be used in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Okay, So that the gospel goes out clearly. So that there is no confusion. So that there is no chaos. Now, again, several of these gifts, I, I feel, are foundational gifts. Many of the gifts, I think, died with the last apostle. Um, But when you read 1 Corinthians 12, you read 1 Peter 4, you read Ephesians 4, there is no doubt that there are a plethora of spiritual gifts today that God gives His people for His glory and for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, Let me close out by asking this, or by making a statement. And the statement is this, that understanding and applying your spiritual gift is crucial for your service as a Christian and for our function as a body, as a local congregation. And so what I don't want is I don't want you feeling inferior to any other believer. Looking at a believer and thinking, boy, if I had their gift, then I might be able to be used by God. Because God has gifted you to be able to serve him. I don't want you looking at somebody and saying, oh, I'm better than them because I've got a better gift than that person does. God forbid we allow the same root of pride to grip our heart and choke our heart that was choking out the hearts of the Corinthians. And may we always remember that God saved you and God's gifted you. Not because he saw anything desirable in you. Not because he saw anything worthy in you, and not because you did anything to grab his attention. But God saved you and God gave you the ability to serve him for one reason and one reason only. He chose to do it by his grace. And so may God receive honor and glory for all that we do for our salvation and for our service. Let's pray.